This WBEZ podcast is supported by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Suicide is a topic that hides in the shadows. It's time we talk away the dark, learn how to spot the warning signs for suicide, and how you can have an open, caring, real conversation to help save lives. Visit the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to watch the new short film and learn more at AFSP.org slash talkawaythedark. What's up, Chicago? I'm Erin Allen, and this is The Rundown. It's been a long three and a half years. A lot of us have gotten sick from COVID, and a lot of us know people who died from the disease. I know I'm still feeling the impact of how isolated I was during the initial lockdowns in 2020. And I mean, a COVID infection itself can have a major impact on our bodies and our brains. Whichever way you spin it, so many of us have taken hit after hit to our mental health. But dealing with all of that has changed the way we take care of ourselves. It seems like telehealth therapy is here to stay. So it's way easier to fit mental health care into our lives than it used to be. And we found new ways to connect with community. One of the best ways or most effective ways people have dealt with the collective trauma is by increasing trust in small groups of people around you, your coworkers, right? That's good, but we also know that can cause decreased trust outside of that group. And I think we may see some of that in social dynamics post-COVID. This is Royce Lee. He's a professor of psychiatry and behavioral neuroscience at the University of Chicago. We wanted to get some big picture takeaways from people who know a lot about mental health. So we talked to Dr. Lee, as well as Jonathan Singer, who's a social work professor at Loyola University and the host of a podcast called The Social Work Podcast. So talking to both of them, the first thing I really wanted to get to is what is all the stress of the pandemic doing to us for real? Here's Professor Singer. In terms of stressors and in terms of long term stressors, we actually have several groups in American society that are uh, that live day to day with long term stressors. Right. The defining social problem in the United States is racism. So you have black Americans. Um, you have lots of research that's come out about the effects of ongoing stress in terms of uh, kind of biological medical issues related to, to stress. Um, when we think about uh, one of the things that changed over the pandemic is that pre-pandemic, if you walked onto a subway as just sort of a typical American and you were wearing a mask, people would be like, what is going on? <laughs> right. These days I can put on a mask. A, I know how to put on a mask. Right. And B, I can get on the you know, I can get on the L and put on a mask. And not only do I feel OK, there's sort of peer permission to do that, but I actually feel like I'm providing a social good by doing that, not just protecting myself, but by, um, you know, contributing to the, the well-being of others. Um, I, I think that there has been a, a, a what I hope will be a permanent shift in our understanding of how we can care for the larger group because of the pandemic. Um, in terms of how that relates to the ongoing effects of stress, I do think that there was an exhaustion that sort of a cumulative exhaustion about the pandemic, uh, the stressors about, you know, if I go out, if I'm sneezing, does that mean I'm going to get COVID? I'm going to give COVID to somebody. Am I going to kill somebody? Right. Is that going to be on me? 
Um, and as that went away, I think we just dove right back into trying to go back to business as usual, which didn't give us a lot of time to transition or to um, de-stress from the pandemic. Yeah. Um, Dr. Lee, did you have something to add to that? Uh, sure. Uh, you know, if you looked at the scientific early scientific paper showing how COVID is spread through small social groups, the solution uh, that worldwide was adapted was to cut distant ties and, and keep small uh, small groups, like groups of three or four, but let's say don't have a huge play date with people uh, from another school district. That maps exactly onto social network research about wellness, that mm. your your distant contacts are actually very important uh, for your for your well-being. So the things we had to do to protect against pathogen uh, were exactly those things that we rely on uh, uh, for that kind of natural healing power of just feeling good with people, right? Gotcha. And connecting. Yeah. Uh, it, it's it's no accident. I think uh, through you know however uh, millions of years uh, we've had to struggle with that that um, difficult relationship between pathogen exposure and trust, uh, and a pandemic really just <laughs> makes it a little bit too too apparent. Yeah. And I think one of the things that's really interesting about that is that if the COVID pandemic happened in 1990, we would be having a very different conversation because um, there's a difference between physical isolation and social isolation. Right. And the technology that was available, um, you know, Zoom events, FaceTime, et cetera, et cetera. All of those things were able to facilitate social connectedness in a time where there was um, physical uh, distancing and, and in some cases, physical isolation. Now, do not misunderstand me. The, 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 the early pandemic horrors of people being in hospital rooms alone, dying without family, being able to get together. Some of the social milestones like proms and graduations and first kisses that were delayed or couldn't happen, right? Those things, weddings, I mean, all of those things, heartbreaking. But if this had happened in 1990, when, you know, we were still paying differential rates for before five o'clock phone calls and after five o'clock phone calls kind of thing, <laughs> right? Imagine how devastating that would have been um, to have months of saying you can't see your friends, right? Yeah. Um, and so I do think that there are uh, some ways in which the fact that it happened in the internet era made it a very different experience in terms of that social connectedness. Professor Singer, I know that you think about young people a lot um, with your work, and this is affecting them specifically. Um, there's a whole generation of kids out there about to enter adulthood who experienced a major disruption in their schooling, social development. You talked about missing out on a first kiss, right, or having that being delayed. Um, where are you seeing that impact most? Um, I have seen that there are social delays and academic delays for kids um, because of the pandemic. Kids that are in 10th grade today, they were in the, the middle or the end of sixth grade when the pandemic started. They, they, 
they spent their entire seventh grade online or in very sort of monitored distant classes in person with periods of having to go home because of outbreaks, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Um, a lot of the things, particularly in that um, key developmental stage of early adolescence, where, where kids are starting to figure out who they are in relationship to their peers, large peer groups, right? Not just the elementary school. This is my best friend this week. This mm-hmm. is my best friend. <laughs> you know, just constantly changing. Um, those kids um, are, are having, are demonstrating social delays. There was also this academic delay, right? About what does it mean to be able to be held accountable for your academics in a way that was hard for teachers to do when they were playing catch up, getting new curriculum um, that they had never used before because, well, the ones they were using didn't have an online component, right? So they had to use whole new uh, systems of, of teaching yeah. and learning. Wow. Um, I, I think, you know, one of the other things that's been spoken about a lot that I, I really want to make sure that, that we touch on is that as part of these delays, right, you have this this noted increase in anxiety and depression amongst youth. Um, and and I think those can have effects in terms of their social development, in terms of how comfortable they feel in in-person groups, but also in terms of how, how willing they are to engage with folks online about certain topics. Hmm. Um, I think one of the one of the amazing things about kids these days is that they're actually very willing to talk about mental health, right? There, there's TikToks, I'm feeling sad, this is what I'm eating for lunch, et cetera, et cetera, right? Mm-hmm. All of that sort of stuff. Um, where I think that we are falling short is that next step, which is, okay, you've identified those feelings, now how are you managing them? How are you as a group supporting each other to work through these, right? It's not just that I'm gonna film a video, TikTok, and I'm gonna put it out there and then just let everybody sort of have a feeding frenzy about that. But how am I actually managing this? Um, and if we think about what happened in the pandemic, you had this, you know, like a decade of increasing anxiety and depression rates that continued to rise mm-hmm. during the pandemic. And yet, this is among <laughs> young people specifically, or specifically okay. among young people. Um, but it was exactly the time when you would um, you would hope that people would feel worried about the future, which is a way of talking about anxiety without using a technical term, Mm -hmm. or feeling sadness um, and perhaps hopelessness about maybe loss, maybe a parent died, um, you didn't have those milestone events. So we would actually expect a, a healthy group to experience more anxiety and depression during a global pandemic. Hmm. Um, And that's exactly what we saw. We actually saw that they responded appropriately. The question that we have yet to answer is, will those rates um, uh, level off or decrease as we move further and further away from this global pandemic? Hmm. Do you have any predictions or hypotheses there? (laughs) Well, so a couple things. One, I think that we could see a leveling off of anxiety and depression just sort of kind of as a normative thing, right? Um, especially if we um, uh, have um, kind of these, these economic and structural improvements 
right? If, if youth are able to move out of adolescence into young adulthood with, with economic stability, right? Um, if there is uh, kind of a second internet boom with generative AI, where there's a whole bunch of excitement and possibility that is being created mm. about jobs and different ways of seeing the world, right? That can, that can have a huge effect. But if we continue to have uh, uh, sort of the sequelae of climate crisis, if, if people are being displaced, if there's, if there's news about um, increasing uh, floods and, and threats to physical safety, I'm not sure that youth particularly, right? And when, I, and when I say youth, I mean like kids that are 10 now that are going to be 15 in five years, will they feel less anxious? I don't think so, unless we're really tackling some of these larger structural issues. Speaking of structural issues, Dr. Lee, you do a lot of work um, to try to understand how all of this is impacting healthcare workers. Um, what are you hearing um, as far as how this is affecting folks who are working um, in this field? Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, it's a, it's a mirror, of course, right? Like whatever is happening outside of healthcare happens inside of it. It's the same people, right? Mm. It's just like, it's a day job, right? <laughs> um, but you're at the tip of the spear too. So it's kind of no, a, a sensitized place. Yeah. Uh, looking at the historical view, we know from prior pandemics, it takes about healthcare workers a, about a year after a major pandemic to bounce back in terms of mental health. That's a good thing. I'm, I'm saying that after 12 months, you know, generally in past pandemics, uh, healthcare worker mental health comes back. Uh, the general population takes about two years, at least with previous pandemics, which also makes sense. Uh, so there's a lot of reason for hope. Uh, however, what we're noticing with healthcare workers is um, there really was not a huge sigh of relief outside of maybe ICUs and respiratory. Uh, centers. Uh, some of that was due to this mental health epidemic, the syndemic that occurred about a year after the start of the viral pandemic. Um, so, um, you know, people in the hospital treating young suicide attempt victims, that was really overwhelming in a way that the viral pandemic wasn't. Um, mm. And there are other examples like this. So, um, I'm not saying that it's hopeless or like, don't go into healthcare, not at all. Uh, but maybe to shift over to the positive of this is, um, you know, our minds are, this is why we have minds. And this is why, you know, chat GPT as good, good as it is, is still no match for, for, for what, what we have. Uh, our minds allow us to make a model of the world and predict change and adapt. Right. And so um, Professor Singer was talking about this amazing, adaptation of technology right we take it for granted but if we think back to those first few attempts at zoom you know wow we've really gone good at this stuff when i look at the positives of the pandemic we saw that society was capable of mobilizing very rapid change and i think that's a good thing i think that's makes me feel hopeful one of the things that i see in training social workers um, is that, you know, we have a workforce that now um, is, 
understands that online mental health services can be as effective as in-person mental health services. We also have good data to suggest that there's some mental health services that don't work particularly well. And a lot of those actually have to do with kids, right? You use a lot of expressive and play therapies with kids and those don't work great online. Uh, mm. Family therapy does not work great online. Group therapy is difficult online. Mm. Um, but in terms of adults, any, you know, the three of us that are having this conversation here, it's great to be able to hop online and get some mental health services, um, you know, from 1 to 2 p.m. and still be able to do the rest of our day instead of having to spend three hours out of our day to go see a therapist. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think the, 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 the mental health care workers are recognizing this and they have additional training. So in terms of what Dr. Lee was saying about the hopeful side of this, you know, I think the pandemic really accelerated options in mental health care by about a decade, particularly when it comes to technology. Mm. Um, I'm curious if there's anything that we haven't talked about yet that you would want to make sure people know when it comes to the issue of, of dealing with mental health in the time that we're in right now or anything specific you would want people to take away from this conversation? Yeah, absolutely. I I, I think um, the most important, I think of two things. The most important thing is normalization, right? So thinking about um, emotional problems, psychiatric disorders, psychological problems, not as, certainly not as moral failures, but not even as mental problems. I really do like to cast them as this continuum with other things like inflammation in the body, activation of stress. When we look at the numbers of um, um, Americans affected by depression, things it's very clear. These are not um, abnormal conditions by a few people. Mm. Recent genomic data totally supports that. There are no rare genes causing the majority of psychiatric problems. They're all common genes, normal genes, different combinations of stresses. So it's just part of our everyday life and acknowledging it really takes some of the drama out of it in a good way to destigmatize. And then the last thing I think about, um, and this is this emerges from work with healthcare workers. um, All of these things can sound really scary and intimidating. And one thing that can happen to us is we can stop having fun. Um, The importance of play and simulation is really super important in all of this. Uh, So I alluded to this issue with healthcare workers like the, the, and this is maybe useful outside of healthcare, the the strongest relationship between, between these factors is if you don't enjoy helping people you get burned out and it goes both ways, I think. Right. Hmm. So like the opposite and the cure for, um, uh this kind of you know helplessness is having fun and enjoyment uh so at least i try to implement that in my personal life and so these days i have this you know uh, almost annoying insistence on playing different games with people Royce Lee is a psychiatrist and an associate professor of psychiatry and behavioral neuroscience at the university of chicago thank you for being here Thank you. It was was a great conversation. Thank you. And Jonathan Singer is a professor of social work at Loyola University and the host of the Social Work Podcast. Thank you so much, Professor Singer. It was an honor and a pleasure. Thanks for having me today. 
And that's it for today. Thank you to Justin Bull and Sarah Stark for producing The Rundown and to Ariel Van Cleve for editing the show. Our theme music is by Louis Weeks. The Rundown is produced by WBEZ Chicago and is a part of the NPR Network. And we love hearing from you. Email us with your thoughts, questions, and what you want to hear at therundownpod at wbez.org. I'm Erin Allen. Thank you for listening. I'll talk to you tomorrow morning. <laughs>